Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to your weekly constitutional, underwritten by the Robert H. Smith Center for the Constitution at James Madison's historic home, Montpelier. Your host is Professor Stuart Harris, who teaches constitutional law at the Duncan School of Law of Lincoln Memorial University. James Madison said a lot of smart things, but being an educator myself, perhaps my favorite Madison quote is this, knowledge will forever govern ignorance, and the people who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power knowledge gives. A popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy, or perhaps both. I was reminded of this quote recently when I got a call from my good friend Pat Baker, who teaches at the University of Tennessee at Martin. Pat and a couple of his colleagues recently wrote a paper in which they examined a slowly unfolding crisis that perhaps you've noticed. Have you noticed that local colleges, small colleges, liberal arts colleges are closing down? This has been going on for some years for a variety of reasons, and Pat and his colleagues decided to study it. Now, there's a surprisingly constitutional dimension to this, something called standing. It seems that it's often difficult for an individual alumnus to establish the sort of individualized, particular, concrete injury that's required before that alumnus can bring a lawsuit to perhaps force a college to stay open. Of course, there's also the wider issue of the importance of these small liberal arts institutions in the history of American education and the impact on our constitutional values if they start to close down. Well, Stuart, my name is Patrick Baker. I'm a assistant professor of law at the University of Tennessee at Martin and have been on the show before, and I'm glad to be back, and it's good to be talking to you again. We're glad to have you back, Pat. We're going back a number of years, all the way back to the Appalachian School of Law in beautiful Grundy, Virginia, where we were both on the law faculty. But you started actually there as a student, so I knew you as a student and a young whippersnapper, and then I've seen you rise in academia, and now you're out in the University of Tennessee system in beautiful Martin, Tennessee, where you've been kind enough to let me visit on a couple of occasions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, Martin is a wonderful place, and, and the university is uh, just uh, thriving. So it's, it's good to be here, and, and uh, you're always welcome and looking forward to you coming back. I always enjoy eating your food and drinking your beer and occasionally speaking to your students. So we'll have to do that again. Okay, Pat, so uh, what's up today? What are we talking about? Well, what we're talking about is the federal IRS Form 990. Now, doesn't that sound exciting? That, that sounds extremely talk... boring, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> no, what we're, you know, that's the technical uh, term of it. What we're really talking about is we're talking about the, the current and what is going to be the tsunami of private colleges that are going to close across uh, the country over the next 10 or 15 years. Good heavens. And, what, what's, are they going to close? Well, I mean, the economics, there's several factors going on. You know, one, one of the, the big factors is just a shift in demographics. Um, mm-hmm. There's going to be less college-age students in the year 2020s uh, because of the financial crash. All those people that were in their prime 
years of having children, did not have children. So probably as some economist uh, or economists, excuse me, uh, estimate there may be around 400,000 less college students in, oh in the 2020s. And then the other thing is just the economics of it. Uh, public school education is just so much more affordable than private schools. And, and your elite private schools are, are going to be fine. The Yales and the Harvards, what I'm talking about are your, your small, independent liberal arts colleges that are sprinkled all across this country, uh, I think are going to have a very difficult time surviving this uh, demographic and economic shift. Yeah, the demographics have been a long building issue. Those of us who are in higher education have long been aware that uh, the baby boomers were just that. They were a big boom, and then it was followed to some extent by a bust. And uh, though there have been ups and downs since then, this has been a long-term decline. And now you're telling me something I hadn't really thought about. It's all those young people back 10 or so years ago in the mid-2000s who were in prime childbearing age, they decided not to have as many kids as they otherwise would have had. And so yeah, that's exactly have, right. Wow. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that part of it. But so that the decline will be exacerbated then and in, in the coming years. Yeah. And, th and that was what really came out. My, my co-authors and I, uh, I've got to get a tremendous amount of credit to Professor Paula Moore and Caleb Byers uh, and their work on this article. It was a team effort. I, I do need to, to, to give them Sure. What's the, what's the uh, title of your article again? Well, the title of the article is somewhat tedious, Nonprofit College Crash, Enforcing Board Fiduciaries Duties Through Increased Accountability and Transparency. In you need, you need to work on the title, Pat. It's just not pithy. 990 procedure. Well, the good news is, is we, we've already got a, and, and the editors may change it, the article will be published this year uh, in the Education Law Journal at Brigham Young University. So we're thrilled that BYU um, is going to publish the article. But as you know, Stuart, once the editors have it, it is now theirs. So I look for that uh, that article title to change once the editors <laughs> get done doing their work. So. Glad to hear it. So you and your co-authors have got yeah, this and we, very and well we placed. Dug in, and we dug into this, you know, dug into this topic. It was really alarming looking at the demographic shift as far as the population, looking at the economics of private colleges. And, and this is not just me uh, you know, being uh, a tempest in a teapot, you know, Moody's is the one that we based our forecast on that looks at, at you know, that the private college closings are going to triple in the future. And, mm. and right now, three private colleges close a year in this country anyway. Wow. Yeah, we've seen that happen. We've seen that happen in where we both used to teach in southwest Virginia, um, where a number of venerable institutions are either shuttered or on the verge of collapse. And We've yes, seen. my mother's alma mater, Virginia Intermont, yes. closed uh, after, after over 100 years. And 100 was, years, uh, yeah. And it's yeah. one of those things where you look at it, and it looks so stable, these big old brick buildings and a beautiful setting and lovely campus. And then the next thing you know, it's out of business. And yeah. uh, it's it's just shocking, of course. And there were even some other places. Um, was it Sweetbriar College in Virginia also? Yes, yeah, Sweetbriar attempted to close, and, and that's you know talked about in the article the board there, uh, even though they were not in financial difficulty, the board there decided to go ahead and vote to close the institution just uh, based on uh, the data and the information they had that the school was going to close eventually anyway, so why don't we just go ahead and wind it down? They faced a plethora of lawsuits, and one of the things we talk about in the article 
is generally in these nonprofit closings, state attorney generals uh, don't take action, and they, they don't take action because of political reasons or financial reasons. They don't have the resource to dedicate it. Um, so, you know, if you're looking at policing private colleges or curtailing the opioid epidemic, most attorney generals are, are, are faced with, you know, curtailing the opioid epidemic. So, yeah. no, you know, I in Virginia, that. for instance, but, but before, the before we get before, file suit. Before we get to that, and I and I want to talk about that. I want to want I want to talk about what happens when these places actually collapse and close. But let's talk about the other aspect of what's causing this, and maybe fundamentally it's demographics. But the other thing you mentioned was expense. I mean, these colleges have operated in some cases for over a hundred years, and somehow they managed to meet their expenses. Why are their expenses so much higher now? Well, I mean, the the reality of it is is that in order to compete. Uh, in higher education in the year 2019 just requires an immense amount of resources as far as, you know, technology, salaries, uh, legacy cost. And so while these private colleges were able to keep costs low uh, for, you know, decades, the reality is now they can't do it. And so if you're faced with, you know, going to private college and incurring $100,000 in debt, i.e. a private college, or going to a public university and incurring $20,000 worth of debt, the reality is that most consumers uh, will make the choice to only incur $20,000 in debt or $30,000 in debt versus the higher price tag. Yep, that's absolutely understandable. And having just sent two kids to college in the last few years, I understand that. But one more thing before we go. Expense, I, I, I hear you and understand you that these days you simply need more resources. So every classroom has to be wired. Every classroom has to have screens up on the wall. You have to have uh, wireless access uh, across your campus so that everybody can use his laptop. So I guess I understand that part of it. I'm wondering if there's one other cause out here, uh, and that is the inflationary aspect of easy student loans. Now, hear me out on this one. I'm not an economist, but I've, I've been pondering this for some years. You know, for many years, you, you people would pay as you go to college. I mean, that's the old story, right? You know, someone would come back right. from the Army and then maybe with very limited assistance um, from the government, would go and basically work his or her way through college. Um, and so there was a natural uh, downward pressure on prices because the colleges had to couldn't price themselves out of the market. Um, and not as many people went to college. Okay, It was a smaller percentage of the population that went in the first place. So maybe a few of these places were able to appeal to to a relatively small segment of society that was willing to work its way through or that had the resources. But then, especially after World War II, um, we start subsidizing um, uh, student loans and even some student grants uh, for a wide range of students. Well, the colleges and universities are glad to get that money. And for a long time, students were glad to borrow it. Um, and I think that maybe relieved some of the downward financial pressure on prices. And so colleges were able to raise tuition because students would just borrow more. Um, I and think that that's exactly right, Stuart. I, I think that there has been a flood of cheap, easy federal money. And, you know, that's just not sustainable. Right. I, eventually, and we've seen this for many years, especially at the law school level, when students already come to us with a significant amount of college debt, they're really hesitating because all of a sudden, you know, they're realizing that they're going to be piling up six figures of debt and how are they ever going to pay this stuff back? And so eventually there's a day of reckoning and we've been experiencing that reckoning now for the last decade or two. 
And students are simply not willing to take on that debt, which brings us back to your point, which is, you know, they're, they're looking very carefully at their expenses and they're finding that the private colleges and universities just aren't competitive. That's exactly. And, and the, the consumer is just much more savvy and the information is just much more available uh, because of online resources. And the consumer has educated themselves. And so going $100,000 in debt and being saddled with that for a decade or two decades uh, is not worth it. I mean, the data uh, doesn't lie. And so the consumer knows that. Okay, so now we've discussed the problem. And now I understand why you're giving me these chilling statistics. And they're particularly chilling for me because I teach at a private law school. Uh, We're fortunate at Lincoln Memorial to have a very strong um, university with which we're affiliated, which is growing by leaps and bounds. And so we're in no trouble, at least not for the foreseeable future. But those are storm clouds down there that we're going to have to think about. Now, you're at a public institution. And so you're on the, the better side of the fence in terms of finances and projections, aren't you? Well, I, I think that we, you know, we are more attractive than our private school um, competitors. But the reality of it is, you know, is the the demographics are shifting. There's going to be less people going to college in the 2020s, and we're becoming largely a coastal nation. The population in the Midwest, uh, which is, you know, we're as much Midwest as we are Southeast. I mean, we're only, you know, um, a, an hour or so from Arkansas and Missouri. The reality is, is, you know, that the population in the Midwest is shrinking. And so even UT Martin and these regional state schools are going to feel and are feeling this demographic shift. It's your Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris. And this week, my guest is Pat Baker, a professor at the University of Tennessee at Martin, talking about a crisis in American higher education. Stick around. to your weekly constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris, and this week I'm speaking with Pat Baker of the University of Tennessee at Martin, talking about, well, a a sad phenomenon. A lot of smaller colleges, liberal arts institutions especially, are closing down. These places have provided educational opportunities for decades that are rapidly disappearing for a number of reasons. And even Pat's own institution is not immune. For those who aren't aware of it, Martin is in the sort of the northwestern part of the state of Tennessee. Is that accurate? Yes. Okay. And so it's a bit to the west and the north of Nashville. takes me several hours to get out there whenever I drive out there. And as I've mentioned before, it's a beautiful country. It's farmland. But farmland and rural communities are suffering demographic shifts, too. That's absolutely correct. And if you look across the country, rural areas, I mean, I just a few years ago, college applications from students in the Midwest, I think, was down uh, almost 10 percent. So the, the trend is just less people are going to college and there's going to be less people in the Midwest. So private schools are feeling the pinch, but public schools are, are going to feel the pinch as well. Um, and, you know, that kind of provides a nice dovetail to the article, which is public schools, the information is very available, um, and through you know different resources, you can request the information about public schools. 
private schools in large part operate in the shadows and they're able to uh, avoid the transparency. And so consumers have a much more difficult time of educating themselves. And, of course, the risk here is that if you're, if you're an 18-year-old student and you're considering going to college or if you're a 22-year-old student and you want to go to graduate school, uh, you obviously want to go to a school that has a viable future for, for several reasons. First of all, you don't want it to shut down right in the middle of your studies. Um, that's, that's horrible, and that's happened a few times we've seen that. But secondly, of course, the reputation of your school and the, 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 it translates to the value of that diploma that's on your wall. And it never does anyone's career any good to have to say, yeah, I went to this law school that doesn't exist anymore, or I went to this college that had to shut down. Right. That is exactly right. Uh, and, you know, Concordia College uh, in Selma, Alabama, just recently closed, which was uh, had been around for a century, was a historically black college, and, you know, financially just could not make it. And so that, I think that that is going to become more and more of the story and that's where the IRS 990 form is so important because every nonprofit has to file a 990 form okay. whereby that information is available as far as revenue, expenses, salaries, cost, um, all those are included in the 990. It's a very long, it's about a 40 to 50 page document that nonprofits have to file every year. Okay. So your point is, is that if a student wants to avoid a school that may be on the verge of closing or whose prospects simply aren't good down the road, that one additional bit of research that student wants to do in addition to everything else you do when you're considering a college is go to get an IRS 990 form. Are those available online? Yes, there's several websites that have those available for the public where you can do research on nonprofits, specifically nonprofit or private colleges, um, and you can pull those documents and review them as far as, you know, what are the salaries. Uh, the form requires, uh, you know, expenses over a certain amount have to be reported. Uh, all those things are included in the document. So it can be very helpful for the consumer, i.e. the student. It could also be helpful for uh, alumni that want to continue to track their college and be involved, as well as donors. If you're thinking about making a donation to a college or university, do you really want to do that uh, if the university or college is on the brink of collapse? And so it's a very powerful tool for the consumer to be able to do their due diligence. All right. Well, you're depressing me, Pat, and I'm going to ask you to depress me some more. We've mentioned in passing a couple of places that have closed why don't you tell me some of the more compelling stories about the collapse of this or that institution? You mentioned the one your mother went to, Virginia Intermont. Is that one? Yes, Virginia Intermont just recently uh, closed a year or two ago in Virginia. I don't have the, the numbers right in front of me, but I want to say that approximately 10 or 10 to 12 private schools in Virginia, for instance, uh, which has a lot of private institutions, uh, have closed over the last decade. Uh, and just recently, Concordia College, like I said, in Alabama, uh, closed in the fall of 2018 because they simply could not continue to exist. And so, you know, we're going to see more and more of this recently, or not, I shouldn't say recently, but at least regionally in this area. Uh, several years ago, Lambeth University in Jackson, which was a private college which had been there uh, for a century closed and you know luckily the university of memphis you know took that over and they have a branch campus there now but uh lambeth ceases to exist 
and mm. I know several of the alumni and people who are involved in the school, and it's it's very painful and and hurtful. Yeah, uh, that their alma mater doesn't exist anymore. And you mentioned before, and I interrupted you, Sweetbriar College, the trustees there decided they were sort of going to preemptively avoid being in the death throes, and I and and that's. <sighs> That's something that, to some extent, I understand. I recall, for example, at Virginia Intermont, now that I'm thinking back on those years, that there were hints that were getting into the press. Every once in a while, you would see a television news segment or you would see an article in the local paper where this or that official there would be saying, well, you know, we've got a real shortfall this year, but we're hopeful for next year and we're going to have a major fundraiser and we're looking for someone to come in and really bail us out. And I seem to recall that it was actually a local businessman I think he owned an automobile dealership. Bill, Bill Gatton. Bill Gatton, that's right. And he came up with several million dollars, didn't he, to try right. to save and the, Intermont. The, and, and my understanding was the school had to match it. I'm not sure if whether or not they were able to match it. But I know there at the very end that the uh, – and like I said, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit fuzzy on the facts. But I want to say that there at the very end, the college of the president was actually loaning the college money. Uh, in order to, you know, pay salaries and, and pay bills. Um, mm. So these things don't end well. And no, it got so, very ugly at the end. In fact, I think the last day there was a, a lockout or something of that extent. I mean, people couldn't get in their offices, and there was a question about whether they'd get their last paychecks. And then the next thing I heard, they were having a giant garage sale, and people were just coming and, in and carting stuff off. That and that's and that and that is what uh, and and I remember that very well. And going back to the Sweetbriar uh, episode, mm-hmm. you know, there the attorney general refused to file a lawsuit or get involved, uh, and that's what we see in most states. The attorney generals just refuse to to get involved for political reasons or economic reasons. They don't have the resources. It was actually the county attorney that mm-hmm. filed a lawsuit uh, against the board. And an injunction to keep the school open. That's very uh, interesting. So the, the trustees there, and, and, and again, to some extent I can understand this, they don't want to go through what Virginia Intermont's gone through. They don't want to go to the bitter end and, you know, leave investors and, and angels, uh, you know, contributing millions of dollars that then just go down the tubes. Um, so you, you understand that they, they, they want to do an orderly wind-up of their business. Okay, so I understand their perspective on that, and, and maybe they were just looking at the tea leaves and the projections and saying, okay, we need to shut this down in an orderly fashion while we've still got resources and give people a chance to find other jobs and seek other education. Okay, so I understand their position, but they were fairly far from being in financial distress. Wasn't that the crux of, of why ultimately that county attorney came in and, and tried to keep them Oh, open? that's exactly. And, and the alumni came in and, and filed suit because they had uh, large real estate holdings and they had trusts uh, that were set up by donors that were very restrictive trusts. But there were legal means by which the board could exercise uh, their authority either to sell real estate or convert those uh, donations uh, to, to use them, and, and the board just neglected to do it. And so uh, a big, big basis of the lawsuit was just a breach of fiduciary duty that the board failed to act in good faith and, and with loyalty to the institution. Okay, there are a couple of legal issues there. Let's talk about it. And the first one, of course, is, is – um well, the background one, and one that's a little bit more boring, but we'll, we'll get we'll cover it, is the issue of uh, designated contributions. I mean, if I give uh, 50 acres to Sweetbriar College and I say I want this to be for the benefit of the college, 
well, then, you know, then I go, go off and die or something. Well, to some extent, the college's hands are tied. They have to use that money consistent with the bequest, uh, with, with the gift that I've made them, to them. So it's not like they can just liquidate things in a bankruptcy. Uh, they've, they've got to a certain amount of, of restriction in how they can use funds or other college resources. And then that brings us to the issue that you've, you've mentioned flat out, and that's fiduciary duty. Tell us about that. What is, it, what is fiduciary duty, and how does it affect a, a nonprofit board? Well, our research uncovered that whether you're on a nonprofit or for-profit, your fiduciary duties are the same, that you have, you are a fiduciary. You owe the duties of good faith and utmost loyalty, whether you're on a for-profit or nonprofit. Okay, so put it, put, tip, put it in common terms, and fiduciary simply means is, that it's a position of trust. You have to do what's in the best interest of the institution right. or the best interest of the organization above what is your own personal desire or your personal wishes or wants. Okay, so if I'm on the board of Virginia Intermont or Sweetbriar College or any other nonprofit, my duty is to do act to vote in the best interests of the institution uh, as I see it within the exercise of my judgment. That's exactly right. And if I do anything less than that, I'm in breach of my fiduciary duty, and there could be consequences. Absolutely, and and. That's where, at least on the back end, it's very hard for students or alumni or faculty, staff to, you know, bring lawsuits against the board for breach of fiduciary duty. By that point, it's almost too late. Okay, yeah, so the board is there and operating, as you say, in the shadows. Um, Not a lot of reporting going on. Often those meetings are closed to outsiders. And they, of course, generate their own minutes, and those minutes can be edited or doctored in some circumstances. So the wider public may not be aware of just how bad things are at a place like Virginia Intermont until literally, you know, the, the dunning notices come and the credit dries up and, uh, you, know, Pete, the, you know, someone turns the lights out. And Well, and, and that just recently happened at University of Cumberland's in Kentucky where the chairman of the board at the last second— uh, at a board meeting, put uh, an amendment onto the agenda whereby the board voted to give the outgoing retiring president uh, approximately $400,000 a year for life. And then when he passed away, his wife benefited, or she would then get the $400,000 a year for the rest of her life. And that was all done in the back room under the table, largely unbeknownst to the full board. And they did this... Are they in financial trouble themselves right now, or is this simply um, something? They that- are. They are not in financial trouble right now. But this case uh, was just recently, you know, litigated in Kentucky, and what the court found was that the school did not have to honor this contract to the retiring president for the rest of his life. And you can make a strong argument that that I mean, the board, especially those who knew about this and, and agreed to this backroom deal, obviously breached their fiduciary duty. It was not in the best interest of the institution. So to... courts can come in and undo what a nonprofit board has done, basically saying you guys are violating your duty of loyalty to this institution. That's exactly right. And here, I think there were real que- violations, right, of corporate form and corporate procedure and process as far as how this uh, boondoggle was okay. presented to the board and then adopted. I keep going back to Sweetbriar because I'm still fascinated by the fact that they tried to avoid 
the, the terrible unwinding of an institution in an unplanned and sudden manner, which again seems to me to be a reasonable thing, but apparently the courts have agreed that the Sweetbriar Board's highest duty is actually to try to keep the institution going as long as it has some sort of reasonable chance of doing so with its current resources. That's so th- right, and there, there were clear mechanisms by which they could have gone to court, requested that a trustee uh, be appointed, and then they could have asked the court to amend these uh, restrictive donations and trust documents to allow them to continue to operate uh, in a financially responsible matter, and the board just didn't simply do it. And so there were some easy steps that the board could have done, but they just did d- decided not to do it. And and they're you know obviously they paid the consequences of that, but because of the lawsuits. But typically plaintiffs are left without a remedy in these cases. Let's um, talk a little bit about that because that actually brings us to the constitutional issues uh, that are somewhat obscure. Um, but ultimately extremely important here. You've already said that these boards tend to operate in the shadows. Sometimes there's even corruption going on, sweetheart deals, giving big pensions to outgoing presidents, for example, that sort of thing. Uh, Certainly bad judgment at the very least. Um, And then eventually people start finding out, but then state attorneys general don't have the resources or perhaps the inclination to go into these arcane matters. They'd rather hunt down rapists or, or deal with the opioid epidemic. Um, so then you've mentioned in passing a couple of time lawsuits. Why is it so hard for a group of alumni to try to save their institution when they finally realize that the board is, is letting it collapse? Well, what our research uh, uncovered is that these cases typically go a couple ways. You know, as you know, Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution requires that in order for a court to hear a case, there has to be an actual controversy, also known as the case and controversy clause. And state constitutions have very similar requirements as well. And so what happens is the students or the alumni bring a lawsuit, and then oftentimes those cases are dismissed for either a lack of standing um, or the case is not ripe, i.e. you attempt to enforce the fiduciary duties and bring the lawsuit, but then the court says, well, this is not ripe yet. Uh, The school is not closed. There hasn't been an injury. Uh, And so a lot of times plaintiffs are left without a uh, remedy, and and typically those plaintiffs are students. Uh, I mean, just across the country when we looked at the cases, courts have traditionally dismissed lawsuits by students attempting to for, enforce fiduciary duties based on the fear that if they don't, it's going to result in just a, a vast amount of litigation by students. I, I don't think that's the case. I, I think that that's simply fear-mongering. But it's very tough for plaintiffs in these cases. And then, you know, uh, the courts say, well, look, this, you're not the, the real, really the party that needs to bring this against the nonprofit is not you at all. It's the attorney general. And the attorney general is the proper party. Yet when it's kicked to the attorney general's office, as we've discussed before, they don't have the resources or not interested in doing it. I mean, let's be honest, politically, do you really want to be the attorney general who's investigating a private, nonprofit, you know, religious college? And the answer is no. It just does not, you know, politically look good. And so... Our focus in the article and the research. Wait, wait! Before you get there, Pat, let me. Let, okay. I have to have to get a little bit wonky here because this is a very important concept. We're talking about something that's broadly called justiciability, not that's jurisdiction. Exactly right. 
justiciability. And this is my students glaze over every year when I teach constitutional law, when I get to the justiciability doctrines. What it boils down to is this. Uh, jurisdiction tells a court whether it has the power to act in a certain controversy involving certain parties. Okay, But even if a court determines that it has the power to act in a certain case, it might very well kick the case out. It might say this is a non-justiciable issue, which really boils down to the court saying this is simply something we don't think we want to get involved with for perhaps an important reason. One of the justiciability doctrines is something you called standing. And standing simply means, uh, and, it, and it's based, as you say, in Article Three, Section 2 of the Constitution, that courts are looking for actual cases involving an actual plaintiff and an actual defendant. That's what courts do. They simply don't go out and do good, as Congress and the president are supposed to do. They're supposed to sit back and wait for cases to come to them, and cases come to them because somebody says, I am a plaintiff. I have suffered a specific concrete injury, and uh, I want the court to uh, address this, to redress this, by pointing at the defendant and saying, defendant, fix this. Pay me money or you know, stop doing what you're doing or do something differently. So you've got to have three things. You've got to have the plaintiff with a concrete injury. You've got uh, to have a defendant. And then you've, the court has to be able to redress this issue for it to qualify for what the Constitution calls a case or controversy. Now, this is a very important doctrine, um, and there are variations on it uh, as well, but uh, the courts often use this doctrine to step back and not take cases that they simply don't want to take. The Supreme Court of the United States is notorious for doing that when it has a really nasty issue that it, it just wants to kick the, the can down the road with. Uh, they will simply say that there's a lack of standing. One aspect of standing is that you're looking for that one plaintiff, ideally, or a small group of people whose injuries are very specific to them. And the idea there is that um, they're going to litigate this case and they're going to litigate it aggressively because they've suffered an individual particularized injury. On the other hand, if there's a large group of plaintiffs, uh, then sometimes courts will say there are just too many of you. Um, and it's hard for us to say that this person or that person is the appropriate party to bring this case. And so unless people are willing to get together and, and bring some sort of class action lawsuit, which is difficult to do and expensive to do, then courts might just simply say, yeah, sorry, students, you don't have standing. You're not the real plaintiff here. Somebody else is. That's right. And it's so difficult, right? I mean, you're talking about a class of plaintiffs that are going into six figures of debt to go to private colleges and then expecting them to be able to hire an attorney and simply put, they don't have the resources to do it. And so courts do kick the can down the road and say, you know, the appropriate party to, the, to take on this case is the attorney general. And if they want to take on the case, they will. If not, it's not our problem. And so courts have just avoided the issue. It's your Weekly Constitutional. I'm Stuart Harris. And in case you're just joining us, I'll mention that my guest this week is Pat Baker, a professor at the University of Tennessee at Martin, talking about a crisis in higher education, the closing or the expected closing of many small liberal arts colleges. What does this mean for our constitutional democracy? Is there anything we can do about it? Stick around and we'll talk about it.
And now it's time to finish our discussion with Pat Baker of the University of Tennessee at Martin, who's talking about the imminent closing of a number of small colleges. In fact, closings that have already started to occur and whether there's anything we can do about it. It turns out that sometimes uh, some legal doctrines actually make it very difficult for anyone to actually challenge a proposed closing. And the other justiciability doctrine that you mentioned is something called ripeness. Now, this is simply, as you said, uh, a court will look at a situation and say, what's the problem? There's, there's nothing to litigate here yet. There's no crisis. You might have a circumstance where the students start getting antsy, and the court simply says, well, you guys are getting, you're getting ahead of yourselves. This, is, this case is not ready to decide yet. Right. The reason that they were able to overcome that hurdle in the Sweetbar case is the board had taken action, and mm-hmm. therefore it was right. But in most of these situations, the colleges just go defunct. And so by the time that that you can bring a lawsuit, the institution is in such financial tatters, you can't get blood out of a turnip. And that, again, goes back to the difficulty of getting an attorney. Attorneys might very well take on a class action lawsuit, but they're they're taking a risk. They take those on a contingent basis. There's got to be a pot of money at the end of the rainbow for those attorneys to get interested in taking on all the risks of a class action. And if you're literally talking about a place that's run out of money, what attorney is going to take that case? No attorney's going to take it, and hence that's why, once again, it gets pushed back to the attorney general that this is the AG's responsibility because the state is not concerned with recouping damages. Okay, Pat. Well, this is just getting drearier and drearier. Is there any hope here? What can people do to protect themselves um, uh, from this Well, sort of and collapse? so the, the article proffers, you know, the 990 process is notoriously slow, and so what is so appalling or outraging is that private colleges file their 990s, but yet it may be two years before those come to light and the public can access them. Now, let's think about this. All the reporting from the Cleary Act to the Violence Against Women Act, all the reporting that private and public colleges and universities do every year, and that data is available within months. Yet here we have a situation where the 990 is filed And it may take years before the consumer has an ability to access that document. So, for instance, if I'm researching a private college right now for, let's say, my son to go to in the fall of 2019, I would say the the 990, I would maybe be able to get the 2017 990. The 2018 would probably not be available. Obviously, the 2019 is not going to be available because it's just March. You know, you're only able to get a financial picture two or three years in the past. And as you and I both know, things can go south very quickly, uh, especially when you're operating on a shoestring budget. You have a downturn in enrollment. Um, You have less foreign students, for instance. So, you know, when you have a very small endowment and you're operating on a very slim margin, you can go from being in the black to the red very quickly. And so this two or three year delay is just unreasonable. And so the article talks about expanding the 990 to include more information and also to have a quicker timeline than the current timeline. I mean, this information should be available digitally within a few months after institutions report it to the IRS. In fact, in this day and age, 
it shouldn't even take a month. Once it's been submitted and the, the bureaucracy's done whatever vetting to make sure that, you know, every every blank is filled in and that the numbers add up, that sort of thing. I mean, once an agency's had an opportunity just to do its cursory sort of inspection of it, these should be publicly available and they should be on, on the internet very, very quickly. And so just to give you two examples, the penalty, if your 990 is late, you're a private college and you submit your 990, the penalty... Stewart is a whopping $20 a day. <laughs> Excuse me. $20 a day if you're late. And it's capped at $10,000. Oh my. So, so if I'm if, a financial if, if I'm if I'm a, on a nonprofit and things are going south and I don't want people to know that because I don't want students to uh, not come there because that's going to make things worse. All I have to do is delay filing my 990, and the worst that's going to happen is we're going to have to come up with ten grand in fines. Which is what, one, at a private college, you're talking about about 25% of one student's tuition. So I can just delay things almost indefinitely and hope that I will get past the next admission cycle without any adverse publicity. Exactly, and you can do that for a, a number of years before you lose your nonprofit status. I think you can you avoid you can avoid filing the nine ninety for three years without losing your nine your nonprofit. So you're talking about possibly between the nine ninety you the consumer can view and the delays. You may be looking at a four to five year delay. So the article talks about having stiffer penalties, uh, quicker timelines. You know, one study showed that somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of 990 forms contain inaccuracies. Mm. So even when you can get the information, about you know 20 to 30 percent of the information that you may be viewing uh, can be, you know, or could be incorrect. So, and it may not know, seem that, obvious why a member of a nonprofit board. And remember, these people are probably not being compensated, at least not very exactly. much. Exactly. Why they would do this, and you have to step back and think about it. We're talking about small, oftentimes local institutions. Uh, who's on the board? You know, local business people, uh, local boosters, perhaps a few alumni who are very involved in running the school. So they've got strong emotional and perhaps economic interests in keeping that institution alive because oftentimes these institutions are major local employers and major consumers of, of other people's goods. And so it's it's a real potential crisis to shut down, you know, ABC College in Little Town, USA. And so the board is going to have strong incentives to keep business going and to keep bad news off the press uh, as long as they possibly can, hoping that somehow they will recover. But, of course, in this environment, the odds are stacked against them. And so you get a situation where they cover up or they, they, they slow down information or they try to they submit inaccurate information because there's very little penalty for doing so. And then the alumni and the public really only finds out, as you say, when it's too late. That's right. And I want to, you know, touch on two points there. Uh, you know, the, the first point being that these board members, you're right, are often not compensated. They're there merely as a charity or um, they're there to volunteer their time, and so they don't have the incentive to keep track of the financial information and to do the due diligence that they should be doing uh, because they're volunteering their time. And then what that leads to is what we like to call board capture, and that'll be uh, maybe my next article. Tell me about where that. A, well, a small percentage or a small minority of the board is highly invested in the institution. 
And so what they do is essentially capture the board, and then those three or four members are able to control the other 15 or 20 members on the board. And you see that like at the University of Cumberland's case. There was a small number of board members that were able to craft this sweetheart deal unbeknownst to a large number of the board for the president, for him to receive approximately $400,000 a year for the rest of his life. But that doesn't obfuscate the rest of the board from liability. You as a board member are a fiduciary, whether it's for-profit or non-profit. So if you're choosing not to do your due diligence and keep track of the finances and ask questions, you're exposing yourself to liability. Uh, has that actually ever no has, that, has that happened? If, has anyone have individual nonprofit board members been held to account? Have they had to pay fines or go to jail or anything that you that you're aware of? I have not. I have not been able to find very many, if any, successful cases where uh, individuals or, or plaintiffs have been able, like I said, to file a lawsuit against the board um, for you know misappropriation of funds or malfeasance. Now I'm sure there are criminal uh, cases out there. But just from the standpoint of being able to enforce these fiduciary duties, it's so hard for the plaintiffs to do it. Well, maybe that's another solution, Pat. Maybe in addition to giving people more information on the front end, we have to invigorate our attorneys general and let them – maybe your article will let them know that this, as you say, is a tsunami. It's coming at them. This problem is not going to go away. Maybe they need to devote more resources. And maybe a couple of prosecutions of particularly egregious conduct um, or particularly egregious neglect uh, by nonprofit board members will get the attention of the rest of those board members across the country. And, you know, the message being, if you're going to be uh, on a nonprofit board, well, good for you or thank you for your time. But you really do have to devote the time and you've got to pay attention and you've got to make reasonable decisions. Uh, otherwise, there, there may be individual consequences for you as a board member. That, that's exactly right. You know, there was a, a case against American University um, against the president, Benjamin Ladner, who misappropriated $500,000 in university funds. And he used the money on personal meals, entertainment, uh, and, and, and an engagement party for his son. When the board found out about this, uh, they did terminate him. But they also awarded him a $3.7 million severance package, oh, even though— and, and so, you know, not only did he break the law and breach his fiduciary duty as a president of the university, the board, you could argue, by awarding a $3.7 million golden parachute to someone who has broke the law, also breached their fiduciary duty. And it, the student who filed the lawsuit, the case was dismissed. Oh, good heavens. For lack of standing. Good grief. Well, Pat, you've identified an area where there's a huge problem. And there are huge gaps in the law, and there are huge gaps in enforcement. So it sounds to me like you got several more articles you could uh, you could devote to this. Oh no, it, it's a budding uh, topic, and it's not going to go away. And as we look in the next ten or fifteen years, uh, what we're going to see is we're going to see more private colleges closing. And so what we're really attempting to do in this article is versus waiting on the back end for litigation, what can we do on the front end to better educate? Uh, the consumer to make better choices. Well, Pat Baker of the University of Tennessee at Martin, thanks very much for this very distressing conversation. I expect the next time we talk, I want a happier topic, okay? We'll we'll come up with something better. But uh, as always, I appreciate Stuart. I enjoy it. I love the show. And thank you so much for having me on. You know, I think this is one of my favorite places in the entire world. Here we sit in a room that is essentially green and black. 
and it's covered with this foam, and the foam is three-dimensional, and my gosh, it's an actual recording studio, state-of-the-art, here at Montpelier, the Potter Family Studios, and among my favorite people sitting across from me, the quiz gal, Emily Voss. How are you, Emily? I'm just fine, Stuart. How are you? Fine. You always get this sort of pained expression on your face when you, when you do... <laughs> I feel like, I feel like you... Like I irritate you sometimes. Do I irritate you? <laughs> no, it's not that. It's not that serious at all. Don't worry. I, I don't have the same reaction to you that Jerry has to Newman in Seinfeld. Okay, I'm it's so not that bad. It's not that bad. Hello, Harris. <laughs> okay, glad to hear it. Uh, okay, do we have a contestant on the line? Hi, my name's Amay, and I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana. Amay is that a French name? Yes, very much so. A French name from New Orleans, Louisiana. So you're an authentic New Orleans girl. And, uh, okay, are you ready to take a quiz? Um, I'm not sure how I'm going to do, but I'm ready to try. Well, we're never sure until we try now, are we? So, Emily, let's give our New Orleans girl... Do we have a French-themed question? Or Oh, I, no? I don't have a French-themed okay. question. Oh, we'll but do the best we have. It was, worth, it was worth trying. Okay. All right. Well, today I have a fun game called Declaration of Independence or U.S. Constitution. Okay. In which I will give you part of a phrase... And you will tell us if it's from the Declaration or from the Constitution. This is cool. Emily, what an excellent idea. Okay, good. All right. So our phrase of the day, governments are instituted among men. Governments are instituted among men. Does that sound like it comes from the Declaration of Independence on May or does it come from the Constitution? I think it comes from the Constitution. From the Constitution. Well, think of this soon. What part of the Constitution would have that phrase, governments are instituted among men? Um, not entirely sure. It just sounds like it comes from the Constitution. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds constitutional to you. It's got a constitutional mouthfeel. <laughs> it's got a, a constitutional mouthfeel. Okay, well, I just want to explore this a little bit further now because I want to make sure I'm, I figured this out too. Now, the Declaration, of course, was just that. It was a declaration, we call it Declaration of Independence, but it's actually a declaration of secession from the British Empire. And a list of grievances. And then followed by a list of grievances that had that beautiful language in the preamble written by Jefferson that had lots of philosophy in it, you know, the basic reasons uh, that they were setting before a candid world, why they were separating. And then, uh, of course, we have a preamble to the Constitution as well which talks about similar things. So that might be preamble language, but that doesn't help us narrow it down because they've both got preambles, right? Right. That's exactly what I was thinking. Was, you know, it does sound like very preamble language. Okay. Well, governments but. are instituted among men. I have a guess. Well, Stuart, it's only a 50-50 shot. That's right. I have a guess, <laughs> and I'm showing you the, the number I'm thinking of here. Okay. So we can check me out later, but first of all, why don't you give us the answer, and we'll see if we're right. All right. It is, in fact, the Declaration oh, of Independence. Oh, May, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I seem that's to... Okay. Well, no, that's, that is too bad. I mean, that was a hard one because, as we discussed, they both have preambles, and the preambles are sort of doing the same thing. They're both sort of talking about the purposes of government, I do seem to have recalled, though, that um, Jefferson did say that governments are instituted among men, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Right. right. It's meant to answer the question, why do people establish government in the first place? Right. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's from John Locke, or at least it's borrowing the idea from John Locke, but that's 
going a little bit beyond the question right now. Well, may, in any event, you still get a pocket constitution from James Madison's Montpelier. So go ahead and send us a, a message on Facebook, uh, on our Facebook page, and go ahead and uh, give us your address, and we will send that to you. Great, and the Facebook page is our uh, your weekly constitutional, right? Right, just your weekly constitutional. Just get on Facebook, put that in the search bar. You'll come up with us very quickly. You'll see a great, big, beautiful picture of Montpelier, and just send us a message, and we will get it to you. So thank you very much for playing. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, and Emily, thank you. You're welcome, Stuart. And remember, we the people includes girls too. James Madison, along with his best friend Thomas Jefferson, was one of the earliest proponents of religious liberty. In 1774, Madison was struck by the treatment of Virginia's Baptist ministers under the established Anglican Church. As the ministers were in prison for preaching without a license, and those ministers continued to preach to the public from their jail cells. While drafting the Virginia Declaration of Rights, Fellow Virginia delegate George Mason proposed the principle of religious tolerance, or in Mason's own words, quote, the fullest toleration and the exercise of religion, end quote. But toleration to Madison meant that an established religion would still exist within the state. So Madison amended this language with the proposal, quote, all men are entitled to the full and free exercise, end quote, of religion shifting the arbiter of religious liberty away from human society and towards human nature. And that's our show. Thanks so very much to Pat Baker of the University of Tennessee at Martin for sharing with us a disturbing trend in higher education, but maybe, maybe there's something we can do about it. Our executive producer is Wayne Winkler. Our scheduler is Carol Hutchinson. Our distribution engineer is Chad Barrett. Our music is by Hannibal's Elephant. Check them out on SoundCloud. My name is Stuart Harris, and remember, you are a part of the American Experiment. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.